Rescuers in Turkey and Syria are racing to find survivors trapped from yesterday's earthquake. More than 5,000 people are now feared dead. It's Tuesday, February 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, a preview of President Biden's State of the Union address. WBUR and NPR will have live coverage at 9 p.m. Also this hour, we hear from the sister of a man shot and killed by Boston police officers three years ago today on her push for police reform. Daily, new families are joining us in this club that we do not want any more members, and nobody wants to be a part of it. And federal regulators crack down on what's called a yo-yo car sale. A yo-yo car sale is called that because after you buy a car, the dealer pulls you back like a yo-yo and changes the deal. Celtics win, increasing clouds today in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. More than 5,000 people have been killed in the catastrophic earthquake that rocked Turkey and northern Syria yesterday. There have been hundreds of aftershocks, including one tremor almost as strong as the main quake. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is in the major southern Turkish city of Adana, not far from the Mediterranean Sea. She's near a residential high-rise apartment building where many have been killed. The building behind me was 15 to 16 stories, and it's now reduced to dust and people's personal possessions. Rescue workers have been working on here since the morning, pulling out some people still alive, but also many, many bodies of victims. NPR's Ruth Sherlock in Adana, Turkey. President Biden will deliver his State of the Union address this evening to Congress. Meanwhile, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to bring Biden back to the negotiating table to discuss the debt ceiling and significant government spending cuts. NPR's Dustin Jones reports that for McCarthy, the two issues are one and the same. During a press briefing, McCarthy called the national debt the greatest threat to our future. Doubling down on his stance, he said the government cannot raise the debt ceiling without also cutting down on what he called wasteful Washington spending. President Biden wants Congress to raise the debt limit yet again without a single sensible change to how government spends your hard-earned money. None. McCarthy acknowledged that defaulting on the debt isn't an option, but added neither is a future of higher taxes and higher interest rates, and that the president's my way or the highway approach won't work. Dustin Jones, NPR News. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation says that it has opened a probe into the fatal officer-involved shooting of an environmental activist last month near Atlanta. A private autopsy reportedly shows that Manuel Tehran was shot at least 13 times during a raid on a site where activists have been camping. Georgia authorities are clearing that site to build a public law enforcement training facility. From member station WABE, Shemaine Cruz prepared this report. Civil rights attorney Brian Spears said at a press conference that Manuel Tehran's family is asking for an interview with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to help them understand what happened. Attorneys are also asking the agency to release any audio or video footage of the incident. We're not here today because we can sit in judgment of what happened. We're here today because we need facts. Authorities say officers shot and killed Tehran in an exchange of gunfire in which a state trooper was shot and injured first and that ballistic analysis shows the bullet belonged to a handgun in Tehran's possession. For NPR News, I'm Shemaine Cruz in Atlanta. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, Dow futures are slightly lower. This is NPR. 
From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The local Turkish community is coming together in response to the massive earthquake that rocked Turkey and Syria. Cenk Emre founded Free Range Market in Medford, which sells Turkish and other international goods. It's also become an informal gathering place for the Turkish-American community. Emre is collecting donations to send to Turkey, including money, clothing, baby formula, and more. Please do something. And I guess the best thing to do, as much as I don't like asking people to contribute monetarily, do your best to support either in money or in goods. Emre is working with the Turkish consulate in Boston. He's already donated true truckloads of items to be sent to Turkey. After a month on the job, Moore Healy is heading out of state for the first time since she became governor. WBUR Steve Brown tells us she's heading to Washington, D.C. twice this week. Today, Healy heads to the nation's capital, where tonight she will attend the State of the Union address as a guest of Springfield Congressman Richard Neal. In a news release, the governor says she's honored to be Neal's guest, adding her administration is committed to continued collaboration with the state's congressional delegation. Healy will return to Washington again on Thursday to take part in the annual winter meeting of the National Governors Association. She and the nation's other governors will attend a working meeting with the president and vice president of the White House, where the Biden administration is looking to hear from the governors about the impact of the White House economic agenda on the states. The annual Governors Association meeting concludes Saturday night with a black tie dinner at the White House. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will announce members of a new task force that will study how the city can provide reparations to black Bostonians. The city council unanimously voted to form the group in December. Wu says following enslavement, black Americans have been denied secure, stable housing and pathways to build generational wealth. Similar commissions have been formed in California and New York. Boston University researchers say nearly all of the brains of deceased pro football players they've examined show signs of neurodegenerative disease. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is caused by repeated head traumas. 91% of the brains they examined had signs of it. Among the general population, the rate is normally around only 1%. Anne McKee is a neurologist who runs the BU CTE Center. If we really are serious about protecting the long-term brain health of these players, we'll make some substantial differences in how we play the game. The National Football League has acknowledged a link between the game and the disease. It says there have been some changes made to protect players. The town of Winthrop is auctioning off two used fire trucks. Proceeds from the auction will go to road maintenance and community programs. Town officials say the trucks could be used for road construction work or at a small fire department. The price for one of the fire trucks is currently at $650, although it doesn't work too well. The auction ends next Monday. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. The Celtics beat the Pistons 111-99 to last night in Detroit. The Seas will return home tomorrow to host the Philadelphia 76ers. In your forecast, increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll be in the mid-30s. A chance for rain, freezing rain, or snow overnight. The low will be around 30, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. Right now it's 26 degrees in Boston at 708.
WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Sunday's earthquake devastated parts of Turkey and northern Syria. The region of Syria hit is already home to millions of displaced people who came here for refuge from the violence of the country's more than decade-long civil war. And videos of the destruction are hard to watch. Here, a man calls to a child whose body is partly stuck in the top floor of a building. The rest of him is dangling. Say there is no God but one God, he tells the child, knowing he probably can't save him. First responders and volunteers in Syria are working in near freezing temperatures with little equipment to cut through the concrete rubble. People are buried in rows of collapsed buildings, and this is a place where the infrastructure was already crumbling from years of conflict. Meanwhile, no one entered is in charge because the area is divided between the Syrian government control and the control of opposition groups. Amara Salmo is a volunteer with the White Helmets who have spent a decade pulling victims out of the rubble of buildings bombarded during Syria's civil war. He describes working desperately among mountains of rubble in devastation like he's never seen. This, he says, is terrifying. Because of hundreds of buildings on the ground, um, because of the earthquake. And the team from the beginning of the earthquake trying to work uh, on the clock, around the clock to save lives. Every uh, hour, uh, bus, uh, there is less possibility to find uh, alive people. Just uh, at the night, uh, today at the night, we we, uh, we are able to save more than uh, five persons alive from under the rubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, still people shouting under the rubble, but uh, more... Uh, you can see more vehicles needed, more more heavy machine needed to do the job. Um, we are left alone here to do this job. Until now, no one, no country, and sent any any help, any international uh, rescue, anything to 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 work here. With the absence of uh, effective uh, state institution, the the absence of any international rescue team. So the the number, we expect the number uh, of the victims to rise significantly. So where you are, there's no effective state institutions, and you're basically on your own with no international aid in pulling people. Yeah, yeah, just NGO. And you can say NGO uh, cannot uh, fill the gap uh, by national or uh, government institution, uh, especially in in front of this big earthquake. What is your estimate right now of how many people have been killed and how many people are under the rubble? Yeah, we were able to uh, pull out more than 800 uh, dead persons, 2,000 uh, injuries. This is not the accurate number because a lot of people pulled their their relatives from under the rubble and and went and uh, buried them without documenting them. The number could rise dramatically. Uh, until now, hundreds of families under the rubble, hundreds of families, uh, 3,000 uh, buildings on the ground, and more than 600 buildings uh, partially affected by the earthquake. And the hospital already um, were affected by the war, the ongoing war. Yeah. Uh, they were uh, attacked by the Russian, by the regime. So right now, at least four hospitals uh, 
have to be evacuated because of the earthquake on them. So if there's no hospitals, where are the injured going? The hospital is overwhelmed with the injuries. Uh, we just here uh, call for uh, blood donation here and there, but that is not enough. Um, we uh, we uh, right now we're trying to make every uh, tent is a hospital. So some people take their injuries to to their homes, to their tents, to their camps uh, to take care of them. So there's no real place to send people who have been displaced by the earthquake, to send people mm-hmm. who have been injured um, for help. So your most urgent needs in this moment is what? Equipment, a place for people to find refuge? Yeah, shelter for the people who are, uh, who are right now under the rain because we are facing a storm. Uh, since uh, for, uh, the 4th of February, we uh, are facing snowstorm. So th- this storm affected everything. It also exhausted the team, the rescue team on the ground. Um, financially and, uh, and everything. So right now, everything is needed. Uh, rescue, international rescue team is needed. A heavy machine is needed. Aid is needed. Medicine is needed. Everything is needed. Fuel for the, for the hospital because they run out of fuel. Hmm. These, the area that's been hit, um, parts of it are controlled by the Assad regime. Parts of it are not and in more areas that are rebel controlled. Is there any type of coordination in a moment like this, in an emergency like this, so that the response can be effective and uniform? Actually, no, because um, you, you can say that uh, those people who are living in Northwest Syria consider that uh, Assad displaced them and Assad did not uh, provide him any help since 2011. So there is no uh, coordination. And we saw uh, that also Aleppo, the city under the regime control, suffering uh, of the, uh, of the weak, um, weak response because we saw uh, civilian people trying with primitive uh, equipment to t- trying to get uh, uh, their derivative from under the rubble. So also uh, there is a weak in Assad regime controlled area, uh, but uh, Countries, Arab countries, trying trying right now to send the help to the government, not to the uh, uh, to the opposition area. So this is, um, I think, I think this is important to send to both uh, opposition and the government area, because both are affected, especially Idlib. Idlib uh, affected more than Aleppo. Um, you have spent years pulling people from rubble because of war already, like you described, buildings impacted, damaged by the years of war. Have you ever seen anything like what you're seeing right now? This is the first time that we saw complete neighborhood under the rubble. Uh, hands of the family, hands of the family, just heard every day, every moment we hear that this family uh, gone away, this family gone away. This is the first time because this everywhere, we saw this everywhere here. Hamar hmm. Sanmu joining us from Northwest Syria. Best of luck to you as you continue to try to save people. Thank you. The current death toll from yesterday's earthquake across southern Turkey and northern Syria is now well over 5,000 people. Stay with NPR for more coverage from the earthquake zone. You'll hear more this afternoon on All Things Considered. Tonight, President Biden stands before Congress. He performs his constitutional duty to update lawmakers on the State of the Union, and the cameras at the back of the chamber mean the event will be seen by more voters than any other speech he gives this year. 
Yeah, I want to talk to the American people and let them know the state of affairs, what's going on, why, what I'm looking forward to working on from this point on, what we've done, and uh, just have a conversation with the American people. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith will now have a conversation with us. Tam, good morning. Good morning. What's the president's challenge tonight? Well, any president would like to stand up and say the State of the Union is strong, and they all more or less do say that. Uh, But there are a lot of Americans who aren't so sure right now. A recent ABC News Washington Post poll found 40 percent of Americans say that they are worse off now than they were when President Biden took office. Uh, Inflation is no doubt a big driver of that feeling, and it's been falling recently, but it's still uncomfortably high. So Biden has to show Americans that he feels their pain. Uh, while also talking about what he feels are very real accomplishments. Brian Deese, a top economic advisor at the White House, said the president's message will be that there is more work to do, but there has been progress. And that's a reason to, quote, continue down the path of progress that we have made. Ah, when you hear continue down the path, people will perceive a point toward reelection there. Yes, it does sound like a re-election pitch. And in many ways, this speech is an unofficial launch uh, for a message that we can expect to hear a lot of uh, if President Biden follows through on his uh, stated plan to run for re-election. This is a primetime preview, if you will, of the campaign we're expecting. Uh, So that's why he was hunkered down over the weekend with his top advisors at Camp David. And he ended up returning to the White House yesterday afternoon, hours later than originally planned. Tam, as you know very well, um, it's a tradition going back at least to Ronald Reagan, the president's bringing guests to point out during the speech. It's almost like casting for a play because the people are there to illustrate different themes. So who's invited for this speech? Yeah, and we have some news on this. On the list of invitees are the mother and stepfather of Tyree Nichols. That's the man who was fatally beaten by police in Memphis. So it is a safe bet that Biden is going to call on Congress to pass policing reform. Uh, there's a man who disarmed the shooter in uh, Monterey Park, California. We know Biden wants an, a ban on assault weapons. There's a woman who nearly died because of a delay in getting abortion care due to the Texas abortion ban. There's a New Hampshire dad who lost one of his daughters to a fentanyl overdose. Um, Several people who have had cancer touch their lives. There are also people benefiting from the big spending bills on infrastructure and semiconductors. A Holocaust survivor, a DACA program participant who was brought to the U.S. by her parents when she was three. As you can tell, these speeches often take on something of a list form because there are so many different stories and and different things that the president is calling for. Also, uh, famous people like Bono from the band U2, uh, who's been involved with work on HIV and AIDS, and Paul Pelosi, the husband of former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who was the victim of a politically motivated violence. Quite a list of casting credits. Tam, thanks so much. You're welcome. That's NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith with some news on who will appear at the State of the Union.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we visit a clinic for American veterans that's now helping Ukrainian amputees get state-of-the-art artificial limbs. It's 720. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities. Supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. ClimateInteractive.org and ThoughtForms-Corp.com. Tonight we meet as Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, but most importantly, as Americans. When President Joe Biden addressed the nation last year in his State of the Union speech, Democrats controlled both the House and Senate. This year, he addresses America in the face of a newly divided Congress and a potential re-election campaign. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Increasing clouds today with a high near 34. Tonight, cloudy with a low of 30. Overnight, a good chance of rain, sleet, freezing rain, and then snow. Not much accumulation expected. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 47. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 721. Tonight at 9... Support for NPR. President Joe Biden gives the annual State of the Union address tonight at 9. This time he'll do it before a deeply divided Congress. Listen live on the radio tonight at 9. WBUR.org will have the speech in Spanish and English. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. The past 20 years saw significant advances in the world of prosthetics or artificial limbs. That's due in part to demand from Americans wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, some of the same experts who were once busy helping U.S. troops learn to live with disabilities have turned their attention to Ukrainian soldiers. NPR's Quill Lawrence met with Ukrainian amputees who've come to the U.S. for care after suffering life-changing injuries. Alexander Fedun is 24 years old. He'd been in the Ukrainian army for two years when he got hit last May. The enemy reconnaissance did, did their job and they mined the roads. He was driving the first truck in a convoy. When he felt the explosion, Fedun says he managed to swerve and block the road so none of his fellow soldiers would drive on into the mines. Then he started tying tourniquets on himself. Ukrainian medics saved him, but he lost both legs above the knee. Eight months after the blast, Fedun is here in Silver Spring, Maryland, learning to use some new legs. Life doesn't stop like this. 
life doesn't stop at this, is the message he's hearing at the Medical Center for Orthotics and Prosthetics, MCOP. The goal is to give him his life back. Mike Corcoran is one of the founders of MCOP. He's been building prosthetic limbs for over 30 years. We're giving them the equipment to live a normal life. And they're tools, but they're not advancing him beyond what he lost. They're trying to make up for what he lost. A network of charities has been paying for the soldiers to get treated here, and MCOP has provided services for free. The legs are donated, and they're state-of-the-art, says Corcoran, which will help Fedun gain the confidence to want to use them. These are uh, uh, computer-controlled knees that uh, learn how he walks. They recognize if he's going to stumble, and the knee stiffens up. And then as he switches from walking slow to medium to fast, they keep up with him. It provides him the stability. Because if he's unstable and falling, he's not going to walk. Until just a few years ago, Corcoran says, his company was fully occupied with American military amputees coming from nearby Walter Reed. Coaching Americans on life after war was different, though. They were returning home from war to a country at peace. The Ukrainians here don't have that option. Since Russia's full-scale invasion a year ago, it's believed that thousands have lost limbs fighting. Dmitry Skilarenko lost his right leg high above the knee to shrapnel from an artillery shell. He wants to learn how to walk with a prosthesis for one reason. His plan is just to go back to the war and kill the orcs. That's how we call Russians. All of the Ukrainians I spoke with at MCOP said they want to go back to the fight. Ruslan Sachenko served 25 years in the army as a sapper a combat engineer trained in defusing or setting up anti-tank mines. His main challenge was setting traps for the Russian tanks while not being seen by the surveillance drones. He had to work quickly, crawling along the ground, usually with four heavy mines hanging off him. That's what he was doing last June 8th. And he was all the, almost done with installing them. When that Russian tank turned to work in his direction, and hit him. The shell exploded near him and flipped him in the air. At first, he didn't even know which way to run. His men were shouting at him, Sapper, Sapper, so he tried to get up and run toward them. But his legs were useless. He started dragging himself along the ground with the help of his commando knife. When his men finally reached him, they pulled him along by the arms. His right leg was visibly broken. His left leg was gone. That was about 20 surgeries and seven months ago. Here in Maryland, Sachenko is learning to walk on a prosthesis that reaches up past his left hip. He's got a harness on that's hooked into a rail in the ceiling so that when he falls, he doesn't have to worry about hitting the floor. Sachenko says he needs to get back to the fight, even as a teacher. He needs to pass his experience to the other guys. Eventually this war is going to end. No war is going on forever. Mike Corcoran wants these guys to win their war and then have a normal life as civilians. The reality of all of this is going back to work or doing something, his rehab and all that, it's, it's a lifetime... Prosthetics will be part of his life for a considerable amount of time. Even now, with all the help and attention and positive energy, Sachenko says it's been hard to adjust even to the good news that he can walk again. 
На півроку тебе немає ноги, а тут є і зрозуміти, що ти For half a year you don't have a leg and you never believe you would walk and finally you can stand up on your own and you can walk psychologically is very hard to adjust to. Here in the States, near Walter Reed Hospital, Tsuchenko says he's felt the support and respect that people have for severely wounded veterans. They act normal around him. He's not sure Ukrainian civilians back home know how to do that yet. But as the war drags on, they're going to have to learn. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Silver Spring, Maryland. The State of the Union address is coming up tonight, and while we always bring you live special coverage of the speech this year, we're going to give you something extra. Alongside our usual broadcast in English, we're going to bring you a second program in Spanish and English. So please join our co-host, A. Martinez, for a bilingual broadcast. It's going to have the same in-depth analysis and focus on topics that are important to you. Listen to NPR's special coverage of the 2023 State of the Union address from NPR News. I'm kind of proud of this. Some of NPR's best hosts and correspondents are fluent in Spanish, and so yeah. we will hear that expertise bringing uh, it to a large audience uh, tonight. Now, I imagine the president will address the war in Ukraine, Leila, which is almost one year old, and yeah. I'm noting that one year ago you were in Ukraine. So how are you reflecting on this year past? Yeah, at the end of this month, it'll be a year since Russia invaded Ukraine and started shelling the capital. So I'm taking a look back at how it started, talking to people we met at the beginning of the war as they chose to flee or stay if they had that choice. Mm. And I'm looking at the global impact and what that has done to the world. We spoke to the foreign minister of Taiwan last night. So you'll hear that reporting in the weeks ahead. Okay, we will be listening for that. Thanks so much. You're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the Federal Trade Commission is drafting new rules for car dealers in an effort to address deceptive practices known as yo-yo car sales. And the trial of high-profile political activists in Hong Kong has begun. They're accused under a controversial national security law. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, working to end homelessness by developing innovative supports and partnering with communities. ElliottCHS.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More than 5,000 people are confirmed dead following yesterday's powerful earthquake that shook Turkey and Syria. The quake and its strong aftershocks injured more than 20,000. Search and rescue efforts are continuing across a wide area where collapsed homes and other buildings are common. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been watching search efforts in southern Turkey in the city of Adana. At this one site, there were 10 bulldozers clawing at the rubble. And every time they thought they'd come across someone, all the machines would stop and fall silent. And everybody would look with kind of bated breath as rescuers would move the debris with their bare hands and listen for signs of life. Often, though, this was a false alarm. Now, of course, the big fear is aftershocks. The need to raise the nation's debt ceiling is expected to be among the issues covered by President Biden in tonight's State of the Union address. NPR's Giles Snyder has more. House Republicans are using the nation's debt ceiling as leverage to seek spending cuts. But Biden's top economic advisor, Brian Dee, says the U.S. has never defaulted and it won't start now. He says the debt ceiling is not negotiable and should not be used as a bargaining chip. The White House says Biden will discuss spending cuts with Republicans but only after Congress raises the debt limit. Dow futures are down 33 points. This is NPR News from Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congressman Jim McGovern wants President Biden to remind voters of his record during tonight's State of the Union speech. McGovern will be there along with the other members of the state's all-Democratic congressional delegation. He believes the list of the president's accomplishments is a long one. I mean, the largest investment to combat climate change, the biggest infrastructure bill since the creation of the interstate highway system, an economic policy that lifted millions and millions of children out of poverty and bringing back jobs from overseas. We passed this historic CHIPS bill. Congressman Richard Neal wants Biden to focus on the economy. He also says he sees the speech as a prelude to an announcement that the president will run for re-election. WBUR and NPR will have live coverage of tonight's State of the Union address. It begins tonight at 9. The visit last year by Prince William and Princess Kate cost the city of Boston more than $170,000. Data from the city, reviewed by the Boston Herald, show most of that money went to police overtime. The royals were here to celebrate the Earthshot Prize, which honors innovation in environmental causes. Veterinarians are concerned about a shortage of providers on Martha's Vineyard. Corey Griffin is a practice manager at Vista Vets in Falmouth. She says there are roughly 12,000 pets on the vineyard, with only about six vet offices and a lack of emergency care for animals. The closest emergency vet to the mainland once you get off the boat is about 35 to 40 minutes away. Time is of the essence, so getting their pet to have them be seen right away is very detrimental and a big issue right now. Griffin says her office in Falmouth typically sees 5 to 10 pets a day from Martha's Vineyard. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H dot com. The Celtics topped the Pistons 111-99 to last night in Detroit. The C's are back at the Garden tomorrow to host the Sixers. Last night at the Garden, it was the opening round of the men's college hockey beanpot tournament. Northeastern beat BU 3-1. Harvard topped BC 4-3 in overtime. The men's final is next week. The women's opening round is tonight. In your forecast, a high in the mid-30s today with more clouds crowding the skies as the day goes on. Tonight, we only fall a little bit to the low 30s, but overnight we may get a messy mix of rain, sleet, and freezing rain capped off by snow. On Wednesday, temperatures rise back to the mid to upper 40s and it'll be sunny. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Cars are the second biggest purchase most Americans ever make. But some car dealers engage in a practice called a yo-yo car sale that can entrap people in bad deals. Right now, the Federal Trade Commission is drafting new rules for car dealers, so it has a chance to crack down. NPR's Chris Arnold has been investigating all this. He joins us now. So, yo, Chris, what is a yo-yo car sale? (laughs) <laughs> nice one. A yo-yo car sale is called that because after you buy a car, 
the dealer pulls you back like a yo-yo and changes the deal. And this can happen when you finance a car through the dealership. And here's how it works. So when you buy a car, you sign all the paperwork, the dealer hands you the keys, and you drive off. And you know that feeling where you're like, this is my car now, you know, wow, uh, you've probably felt that. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's an awesome feeling because you got something new and it's yours. Right, so that is how Caitlin Arland felt too. She's a car buyer that I spoke to. And she's an Army service member stationed at Fort Riley in Kansas. She was 19 years old and she bought a new little Kia sedan. Oh, I was so excited because I remember asking the gentleman, like, I'm good to go. And he was like, you're good to go. How do you feel? And I was like, I feel great. But a lot of the time in the fine print, car dealers reserve the right to cancel the sale if the dealer has trouble with the car loan financing even after the fact on their end. And this can be days, even weeks later after you drive off the lot and you've shown the car to your friends and your family. And this happened to Arland. The dealer called her back and said, oh, the financing has fallen through. You need to come back and make a bigger down payment. They wanted $2,000. I straight up told him, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have $2,000. He proceeded to ask me if I had a credit card that I could pay it on. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable paying $2,000 on my credit card financially. Like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Sometimes at this point, the dealer will tell you, you know, oh, it's too late to get your trade-in card back. We already sold it. So people can end up really over a barrel and get pushed into worse deals. Oh, my God. People make plans when they got a new car. I mean, they structure their lives based on the new cars. Okay, so what happens, though, if the car buyer pushes back and says basically, look, hey, you sold me the car and I'm not going to bring it back? Well, people try that, as you might imagine, but there can be some pretty bad outcomes. The dealer will often just repossess the car. And I talked to two different people where the dealership actually reported the car stolen and that's what happened to Caitlin Arland. So the brigade commander reached out to my commander and said that the dealership said that I had stolen this car. I was already new to the unit and I just found out I was pregnant. So I was already super worried about what everyone was thinking about me. And I was bawling my eyes out in front of my entire unit. And she was worried this is going to mess up her career in the military. And after all of that, the dealer took the car back and she didn't get a car. Wow. Now, I know you dug into this, uh, Chris, to find out how often it happens. What'd you find? Right. So we surveyed consumer attorneys around the country who deal with auto cases. And just a few dozen attorneys say that they've gotten calls from nearly 900 car buyers in just the past year. So this appears to be happening pretty regularly and they said half the time the car buyer is told it's too late to get their trade-in vehicle back and people end up feeling really stuck. What do the car dealers say? Some dealers say the current system works really well. Customers can drive off in a car right away, which they like, even if the financing's not finalized on the dealer's end. The industry says changing the rules would cause delays. And they say dealers don't want to have to call the customer back and cancel the sale or change the deal. Consumer attorneys say, though, that some dealers use the current system to take advantage of car buyers and sometimes with really bad outcomes. Uh, we talked to one car buyer who actually got arrested when the car was reported stolen and spent two nights in jail. So, Chris, is there anything the FTC can actually do to stop that from happening? Well, it appears so. We looked at the state of Maryland, which passed a law in 2015, and we got complaint data from the AG's office and found that complaints fell by half after the law was passed, so it appears to be really making a difference. That's NPR's Chris Arnold. Chris, thanks a lot. Thanks, hey.
Hong Kong's biggest national security trial to date kicked off this week. 16 of the city's most prominent lawmakers, activists, and journalists are being tried for subversion against China after they organized an informal primary. NPR's Emily Fang reports it's a landmark legal case that will test whether Hong Kong's judicial system remains impartial. Only 16 people are contesting their charges of conspiracy to commit subversion, for which the maximum penalty is life in prison. 31 other activists arrested at the same time have pled guilty and are waiting to be sentenced. All of them have been detained without bail for nearly two years awaiting trial. And they are facing a Beijing handpicked judge with no juries. And so when we combine those two spots together, you can imagine the result. That's Baggio Lung, an activist and former Hong Kong lawmaker who now lives in the U.S. He knows many of those arrested, and among those contesting their charges this week are former lawmaker Claudia Mo, journalist Gwyneth Ho, and professor Benny Tai. They were at the heart of a loose coalition of pro-democracy activists active during mass anti-government protests in 2019. And with them behind bars now, gone as much of Hong Kong's political opposition. That's Beijing's intention. I think they are trying to create a chilling effect to the world and the Hong Kongers to, okay, this is what I will do if you come out again. The 16 activists are going to trial after they tried to organize a primary poll. It was meant to gauge how much political support they had before heading into legislative elections that were ultimately postponed. And that effort was seen as treasonous under a national security law Beijing pushed into action in 2020. And back before the implementation of the national security law, you see all these political activities and political parties still surviving in Hong Kong. That's Joey Su. She's another Hong Kong activist who once campaigned for one of the 47 activists arrested. Now that law has decimated Hong Kong's once vibrant independent media and civil society. You see that all these kinds of political activities have been really uprooted from the scene of Hong Kong. The arrest of the political figureheads for many of these parties means that the limited multi-party governance of Hong Kong is over. And the law can be used to enforce the will of just one party, that of Beijing. Emily Fang, Pure News. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, voting officials in the swing state of Pennsylvania are still dealing with election misinformation. Many in the state are concerned about how that could affect future elections, including next year's presidential race. To hear the story, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we talk to the sister of a man who was in mental health crisis when he was killed by Boston police three years ago today. And in our next hour, a power crisis in South Africa is decimating that country's economy. In your forecast, mid-30s today, it'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. Tonight, low 30s, and overnight we may see rain, sleet, freezing rain, and snow. No accumulation is expected. Then tomorrow, upper 40s and sunny. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Now in business news, a six-acre plot in the seaport could become home to a satellite campus for a historically black college. That's the proposal from the Boston-based Cronin Group. It includes space for design classes and job training from Detroit-based Pencil Lewis College. Tavares Brewington of the youth advocacy organization Street to Ivy is helping Cronin develop the program. It's focused a lot on African-American culture and the contributions that African-Americans have made to the design industry, but it's open to everyone, right, to learn and, and, and to really hone their craft around design and innovation. Brewington says one of the classes would focus on shoe design and offer students opportunities with local shoe brands. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today marks three years since the death of Justin Brut. The 41-year-old was shot and killed by police after a confrontation at Brigham and Women's Hospital, a car chase through Brookline, and a crash in Chestnut Hill. His sister, Jennifer Root Bannon, has argued the officers mishandled the situation. Her brother was struggling with mental illness and was leaving a facility where he received treatment when officers initially shot him. The Norfolk County District Attorney found the officer's actions were justified. Root Bannon filed suit, but a judge also ruled the shooting was justified because officers believed Justin Root was armed. He was carrying a paintball gun. Officials in Boston have declined to comment on the case because of the pending litigation. Jennifer Root Bannon is appealing and renewing calls for an independent investigation. She joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Obviously, you're marking this, your brother's death on this day, and it's coming in the wake of what happened with Tyree Nichols in Memphis. How are you feeling? I just want to say with every killing, it's extremely traumatizing. It's triggering, not only for me, but also other impacted family members that I've spoken to over the last several weeks. On Friday, January 27th, when they released Tyree Nichols, the the horrific body-worn camera footage, that was my brother's 44th birthday. Hearing those officers running, and I, I had I couldn't watch it because it had that same feeling of we're rushing, we're gonna get him, and I just had I had to turn it off. We just we needed to end, we needed to stop. We should note that Nichols was black and your brother was white. What part does race play in these shootings with these two incidents, and also just in general? For me, any police killing, um, especially egregious ones like George Floyd, like my brother, like Tyree Nichols, they're just shocking. But what I want to say is that that's happening to a lot of people and, and, and predominantly, yes, black and brown communities, but it's also happening to the mentally ill. And obviously incidents of police interacting with people experiencing mental health crises continue and continue to have disastrous consequences. How are you thinking about the progress we've made on that issue and the progress we haven't made? Where are we on that? I feel like we've taken, you know, three steps forward and two and a half steps back. 
Um, there's still a lot to do. There's a whole gamut of things that need to happen. There's just not enough being done and there's not enough political leaders and our elected officials here in Massachusetts doing enough. Overall, what are the main police reforms you want to see? I want to see an end to qualified immunity. Fatal shootings by police be independently investigated. I want to see more community-based policing. I also think it's helpful for them to have more crisis intervention training. Has this kind of become your life since your brother died? Yes. How does that feel? It feels unbelievable. I still can't believe that this happened. And when I, I, I think about I actually had to drive past where my brother was killed to get here today. I can only describe it as in profoundly life-changing. And the more that I immerse myself in this, the more that I see that, one, my family is not alone. We also realize that daily new families are joining us in this club that we do not want any more members, and nobody wants to be a part of it. You mentioned the work you've done to connect Massachusetts families who've been impacted by police shootings. What have you learned, and has that helped you heal? There has been no time for healing. This is all fight. And actually, the fact that we're sitting here three years later and not one elected official has taken action is appalling. And I know that with this new administration, I have hope that there will be an uh, independent investigation. There has to be. And by the way, I'm not stopping until there is. You're holding a vigil slash memorial today for your brother. Can you tell us what that's going to be like and, and how are you going to remember your brother? So we are going to be in Chestnut Hill, exactly where he was killed. My family and I will speak. Um, we will play one of Justin's favorite songs. And we will have a moment of silence at 929, which is the minute like around that these officers shot 31 bullets in four seconds. So we will mark that. Um, we will just gather with the community there. Police reform advocate Jennifer Root Bannon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Yasmeen Ammer is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Yasmeen. Good morning, Rupa. Yes, we've got a really great show for you today. Um, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and strangely, that is about loneliness. <laughs> and the reason I say <laughs> that is because I just think loneliness is one of those things we don't talk about enough because it's it's so tied to everything it's tied to public health it's tied to um like this social fabric mm -hmm. polarization and um it, it, there are startling statistics about health but but the the interesting thing is the state is thinking about this a lot of organizations are thinking about this there is a task force in Massachusetts um that has been asked to come up with uh, some suggestions and solutions for how we you know overcome loneliness little by little <laughs> Interesting. What else? So uh, we're going to talk a little bit of business, but uh, this is kind of not a not-so-pleasant side of business. Um, obviously, you know, in Boston and Massachusetts, we have a lot of venture capital money. 
Um, so that's a good thing. But the not so good thing is that less in 2021, less than half of a percent of that VC funding uh, went to black founders. And so we're going to talk about uh, the inequality there. That's astounding. Thank you for looking at that. Mm-hmm. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 751. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Heinz Insufengel writes of what he knows in his new novel, Skullwater. It's a story of family, friendship, and war, with Finkel telling some of his own story as the son of a Korean mother and a GI father in the U.S. Army. Because his dad wasn't often home, he grew close to his Korean uncle that he calls Big Uncle. He was a geomancer. A geomancer is somebody who reads the the energy of the earth in Korean tradition. It's the the person you consult for auspicious locations for a home or a grave. He also did exorcisms. Big Uncle was a very charismatic person. And so he's one of the central characters in Fenkel's novel. And he was a big influence on Fenkel's own life. So you could see Big Uncle was sort of serving as a, a substitute father figure mm-hmm. because my my father joined the U.S. Army shortly after the Korean War. And so he was out in Korea as a military policeman. Of course, he ended up marrying my mother. He was stationed up in Camp Casey near the Korean DMZ. Mm-hmm. And so he was uh, basically never home. What was it like being of these two worlds? I mean, in the book, it doesn't feel like you fit in anywhere. You have both scorn and privilege in your position as half Korean and half Western, but not just Western soldiers, right? Right. So in um, the Korean community, we were ostracized for a mixture of reasons. Right? Mm. Part of it was racism because we were only half Korean. The other was because our fathers were U.S. military. And although at that time, uh, Korea was very politically pro-American, people who lived in the camp towns you know, had very mixed feelings about the American presence. Then on the U.S. military bases, where we weren't really supposed to be there, but one of the, the great ironies was that uh, because we were sort of isolated among ourselves. We formed our own very tight, you know, communities, very family-like, as you notice in the yeah. in the novel. And uh, being on the American army bases where we were pretty much left alone, we had no supervision at all unless we got into some major trouble. So the army bases were like uh, huge parks for us. We could basically, you know, do whatever we wanted. And we got into lots of uh, mischief, taking um, things out of dumpsters and selling them on the local economy. Yeah, in the black market. Yes. You know, in the novel, I, I talk about uh, you know, going through the ruins of the 
the burnt down uh, 121st uh, military evacuation hospital mm -hmm. and, you know, selling the remnants that we found um, on the black market. There's also this theme of, of belief. I mean, in it, you see the teenagers influenced by Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism. It's all present here and kind of mixed up as they try to decide what's okay and what's not okay. Uh, that's also actually, I guess you, you would say sociologically accurate. The traditional Korean religion is a very interesting mix of uh, shamanism, Taoism, uh, Buddhism, and of course, uh, Confucianism. And then Christianity came in later. Yeah. So all those religions sort of swirl together in, uh, in daily life. And of course, we had Western fathers and they were mostly Christian. My father tried to raise me as a Catholic. I sort of made of Catholicism uh, what I could, and it didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, the shamanic tradition uh, made perfect sense because I participated in it. You know, when there was a neighborhood tragedy, there would be a shamanic ceremony. Yeah. Or when somebody opened a business, there would be a shamanic ceremony. So that's what my friends and I were exposed to. Yeah. And shamans and the cleansing of bad omens, that's a major part of the plot line, as you point out. If you could talk about how that shapes the outcome of this story. One of the things I did um, as I was writing the, the novel was I, I had to imagine Big Uncle's experience. Mm. And that's the 1950s sections are, are me partially imagining what his experience might, might have been like, but also... Uh, documenting the things that he actually told me. And then because he was a, a geomancer and he had also uh, done exorcisms, right? he was connected to the folk tradition of, uh, I guess, the indigenous tradition of Korean shamanism, which mm. is people go into trances. There are, uh, you know, drums and, uh, and flutes and uh, cymbals and things like that. It's a very... Um, loud and raucous kind of uh, ceremonies. And since a, a lot of the domestic trauma and things like that were addressed by shamanism, in the structure of the novel, of course, what happens is things just keep going badly. Hmm. Uh, one of the, the themes, as, as you probably noticed, is that even when you're trying to do the right thing, you can never know what the outcome will be. Right. Uh, so these tragic outcomes occur, and those are addressed shamanically in traditional Korean religion. There's so much happening, um, but I'm just wondering how much of this was just routine in 1970s Korea, what you describe uh, between the rooster fighting and the dog fighting and the gambling and the black market and teenagers running on around these American bases. In my experience, uh, th that was just daily life. Yeah. It's one of those things that in retrospect just um, is kind of uh, alarming uh, to me, it's especially like after we had my daughter, I was uh, talking to my wife and reflecting on some of the things I did at certain ages. And she would ask me like, would you let Bella do that? And I, I would of course say, you know, of course not. Um, because so many of the things I was doing were, you know, potentially lethal. Wow. Um, and I, I just could not imagine, you know, my, my daughter doing those kinds of things. Heinz and Sufenkel, 
His new novel, based on his own life as a child and teenager in Korea, is called Skullwater. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescuers are braving freezing temperatures to search for survivors from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. More than 5,000 people are feared dead. It's Tuesday, February 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the economic focus expected tonight in President Biden's State of the Union address. WBUR and NPR will have live coverage at 9 p.m. Plus, South Africa is in a power crisis with rolling blackouts costing the economy hundreds of millions of dollars a day. Underinvestment in maintenance and assets is now resulting in a series of breakdowns. Also this hour, the latest on the derailment of a freight train carrying hazardous chemicals that forced the evacuation of at least 1,500 residents in Ohio. In sports, the Celtics win. Northeastern and Harvard advance in the men's bean pot. Increasingly cloudy today in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Thousands of rescue workers in Turkey and Syria are racing to try to find earthquake survivors. Many victims are trapped in the rubble of hundreds of buildings destroyed by yesterday's tremor and hundreds of aftershocks. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Istanbul. Freezing winter temperatures, snow, and dozens of aftershocks are hampering efforts by more than 20,000 rescue workers as they search for survivors throughout the affected region. By midday in Turkey, the death toll from the quake surpassed 5,000 people with more than four times that injured from the quake and its aftershocks. The World Health Organization warns the final death toll from the two countries could surpass 20,000. Dozens of countries, including the U.S., have dispatched search and rescue teams to Turkey. In Syria, the head of the Arab Red Crescent urged countries to lift their sanctions on the country and deliver the heavy equipment needed to rescue people. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Istanbul. President Biden delivers the State of the Union tonight. The primetime speech gives Biden the chance to make a case for himself to a broad audience ahead of an expected announcement that he's running for a second term. NPR's Scott Detrow has more. Returning to the White House on Marine One after a long weekend of speech prep at Camp David, Biden told reporters he views the speech as a conversation with the American people. It will come as Biden sees momentum from a stronger than expected economy with low unemployment and cooling inflation. But Biden also faces challenges. A Republican-controlled House is launching investigations and threatening a standoff over the debt ceiling. And the Department of Justice is still investigating classified documents found at his home and private office. The president is expected to focus on the major bipartisan infrastructure law funding projects across the country, as he's been doing in recent weeks. 
Scott Tetro, NPR News, the White House. Emergency responders in Ohio say they have averted a catastrophe from a derailed freight train that caught fire. Several cars held toxic chemicals. These have been safely drained from the cars, avoiding an explosion. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine had ordered people to evacuate who lived nearby. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant says human exposure to the chemicals if the rail cars blew up could have been extreme. Skin burns, lung damage, and even death. And this is why Governor DeWine of Ohio was so adamant that people evacuate the area. They didn't see any harmful air quality measurements yesterday. The Ohio EPA is monitoring air quality. And officials say that now cleanup and remediation at the site can continue safely. She spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. A House committee holds a hearing today about funding the Federal Aviation Administration. Last month, an FAA computer outage forced a brief nationwide ground stop of all departing flights that lasted for about an hour and a half. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren is eager to hear what President Biden has to say in his State of the Union address tonight. She wants Biden to call out Republicans for refusing to raise the debt ceiling. She says one of the things she wants the president to talk about is how to bring down the price of prescription drugs. This year, for the first time, there's a $35 cap on what seniors pay for insulin. That would have been a cap for everybody whether you're part of Medicare or not. But every Republican voted against that. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is hoping there will be a focus on the high cost of child care. Her guest to the speech is an early childhood educator and mother of two from Mattapan. We'll have live coverage of tonight's State of the Union both here on 90.9 and at WBUR.org. Coverage begins at 9. Some state lawmakers are looking to regulate a costly type of insurance that home buyers are required to purchase. After a WBUR investigation, title insurance is now the target of a new bill filed in the state legislature. WBUR's Beth Healy has more. Homebuyers have to purchase title insurance when taking out a mortgage to protect the lender in case something goes wrong with the property title. Lawyers sell this insurance and urge clients to buy a second policy for themselves, 80% of those fees go to the lawyers, but they don't have to disclose that to clients. Representative Antonio Cabral, a New Bedford Democrat, filed a bill to form a commission that would examine title insurance rates and practices. I think it's pretty clear that there's nothing in Massachusetts. There's no regulations at all in Massachusetts. The insurance commissioner doesn't even have the power to ask for data from those insurance companies. A 13-member panel would recommend changes in state law to protect consumers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. The Federal Election Commission has cleared Congresswoman Lori Turhan of accusations of campaign finance violations. The accusations stem from her 2018 run for the seat, which she ultimately won. The commission concluded it has no reason to believe Turhan and her campaign committee violated election finance laws in the race when it took loans from Turhan's husband. Turhan said today she is pleased by the decision. The Alewife tea station is closed again this morning, and it could be a while before it reopens. A car crashed into a barrier on the roof of the parking garage there Saturday. That sent a 10,000-pound piece of concrete crashing down on the roof of the station. MBTA Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville says given the damage, 
there is no way to project when the station will reopen. Until we know that the roof structure is safe, and by safe that means that it has to be able to uh, withstand wind, it has to be able to withstand snow. Um, until that point in time we have that analysis, I cannot project, because at that we don't, won't know the scope of the repairs that will be necessary until that analysis is done. For now, shuttle buses are replacing red line trains between Alewife and Davis. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. The Celtics were shorthanded last night in Detroit, but still beat the Pistons. The final was 111-99. The Seas will return home tomorrow to face the Sixers. Increasing clouds throughout the day today, it'll be in the mid-30s. A slight chance for rain, freezing rain, or snow overnight. The low will be around 30. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. Right now it's 26 degrees in Boston at 8.08. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. In a city called Adana, Turkey, there's a row of apartment buildings. Most are still standing after an earthquake. One has collapsed like a missing tooth. People stand nearby as rescuers dig for survivors. NPR's Ruth Sherlock was at that scene and joins us now from the earthquake zone. Ruth, hello. Hi. What was it like to go there? Well, you know, I flew into Adana City on this plane where many of the passengers were Turkish citizens. And Steve, they're returning home to a destroyed city, to a destroyed area, destroyed lives. One of the men two rows away from me had just heard that his wife and brother were killed in the earthquake. Mm. His children are still missing. The airport itself was full of rescue workers arriving from countries all around the world. They flew in with rescue dogs and equipment. And Arden City itself has been spared from the worst of the devastation, but it's strange to say that because even here, 11 buildings have collapsed in the shocks, I'm told. I went to one building, the one you mentioned, and that was this residential high rise of some 15 floors that had collapsed to rubble. People were gathered at a playground near the building, watching rescue efforts in the near freezing temperatures. And many of those that were watching had loved ones still under the rubble. <laughs> So here, there's two elderly women and a man, and they were hugging um, and talking about a daughter that had died. She was so happy, one said. Uh, we couldn't imagine that it would end like this, another one said. What else did you see in here? Well, look at this site. At this one site, there were 10 bulldozers clawing at the rubble. And every time they thought they'd come across someone, all the machines would stop and fall silent. And everybody would look with kind of bated breath as rescuers would move the debris with their bare hands and listen for signs of life. Um, often, though, this was a false alarm. It happened again and again. And I spoke to one man. He didn't want to be named, but uh, he'd been watching the efforts for over 10 hours. Do you know people inside this? Yes, uh, we have some relatives that are still ones 
or under. Still missing. Yeah, missing. So he's saying, you know, it's his brother-in-law's family. He says one person was pulled out alive in the morning, but then three other relatives were pulled out dead. Two more are still missing. Now, of course, the big fear is aftershocks. It's cold here, near freezing temperatures at night, but people are sleeping in the cars and the streets and burning debris to keep warm. Ruth, you mentioned you're in one of the less damaged cities. What are you hearing from elsewhere? Well, you know, in other parts of the country, the roads are impenetrable, supplies are already running thin. And even if you can imagine it, Steve, the situation's even worse across the border in Syria. That is a country that's in the midst of a civil war, and there are parts of the country that are even lacking the machinery to help dig people out of the rubble. The Syrian government is calling on the United Nations to help with everything from rescue efforts to food aid. And in opposition-held parts of the north, where there's over four million people, whole streets have been flattened hospitals are overwhelmed and like I said you know rescue workers have very little equipment to work with. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is in Adana, Turkey. Thank you so much. Thank you. President Biden's State of the Union address tonight will likely cover a lot of ground. The suspected Chinese spy balloon, the war in Ukraine, the epidemic of gun violence. But what might the president have to say about the state of the American economy? For that, we turn, as we often do, to David Wessel. He's director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. David, welcome. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. So what's the economic backdrop for this year's State of the Union? Well, President Biden has a lot to brag about, and he probably will. The economy is recovering from the COVID shock. Unemployment is at a 50-year low. He'll observe, as he has recently, that the U.S. has created 12 million jobs since he took office. That's a lot of jobs. Inflation is still too high, but he can accurately say that it's starting to come down. But I think he faces two big challenges. One is that public opinion polls show that Americans are in a really bad mood. It's not all about the economy, but some of it is. Food prices up 12 percent over the last year. Electric bills up 14 percent. For many people, wage increases haven't kept up with rising prices. And for people lucky enough to have 401k retirement plans, they're down. So no president can make people feel better about the economy by reciting a lot of economic statistics. Mm. Second, I think the economy is likely to slow this year. Now, the odds of the soft landing where inflation comes down without a recession are probably better than they were a few months ago, but it's far from a sure thing. So the president needs to avoid the declaring mission mission accomplished mistake and then having words thrown in his face later this year if unemployment goes up. Mm. Now, this year's State of the Union is broadcast across the country as it always is, and it's seen by many as the opening of the president's likely re-election campaign message. What do you think that message will be? Well, one big message on the economy will be to remind Americans just how much Congress did in the past couple of years. I wasn't surprised that a recent Washington Post-ABC poll found that 93% of Republicans think the president has accomplished little or nothing, but 22% of Democrats and 66% of independents think that. Mm. He'll want to reach them. So he's going to talk about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, half a trillion dollars, and about all the tunnels and bridges that'll be fixed. He'll talk about the CHIPS Act, which is a way to protect our technological edge over China. A future made in America is the White House slogan. And he's going to talk about all those climate provisions in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Now, it'll take a long time for these jobs to actually show up in the economy, but he'll want to make people know that those jobs are coming. And the debt ceiling? 
Oh, we can't get away from that. <laughs> so the president's going to say that the credit of the United States government should never be questioned. Congress should raise the debt ceiling. No negotiation over that, period. But he's going to say that Democrats and Republicans have different spending priorities and need to find common ground. He'll say, I'm going to issue my budget in early March. You should issue yours, he'll say to House Republicans. It's going to be hard for them to come up with a budget that does real damage to the deficit since Speaker McCarthy has taken Social Security, Medicare, taxes, and probably defense off the, off the table. Besides spending and taxes, what other economic policies is the president likely to emphasize? Well, this administration has taken a lot of steps to increase competition in the economy. Its aggressiveness on antitrust, the move to allow hearing aids to be sold over the counter, the proposed ban on non-compete clauses in labor contracts, the requirement that airlines and hotels disclose up front all the extra fees they charge. So I think he's going to emphasize that to appear to the to to talk about how he's making the economy better. That's David Wessel from the Brookings Institution. Thank you, David. You're welcome. South Africa's economy is not so good at all because its power grid is collapsing. The president there is considering declaring a national state of disaster. Mpola Kaje reports from Soweto, the famous township of Johannesburg. Mohato Mokoka is racing against the clock, rushing to produce as much ice as possible. Before the next scheduled power cuts at 5 p.m., such outages, known as load shedding, take place up to three times a day across South Africa. We're sitting at a production right now of about 10 to 15 percent from your 100 percent production. But the power outages are crippling Mohato's business. He's literally watching it melt away. What you would deliver weekly, which is 500 bags, you had to drop off to about 200 bags. We had to limit us having new clients. We had to limit doing events. Producers of perishables like wine, poultry, fruit and vegetables aren't spared either. Just pouring 21,000 litres of milk down the drain. There it goes. Dairy farmers like Alan Stratford are forced to throw their profits away. Couldn't cool the milk quick enough and so now it's gone sour. And in South Africa these days, even the dead aren't immune from load shedding. With the constant power interruptions, mortuary fridges are failing. The energy crisis has brought many people out on the streets. South Africans' lives are ruled by load shedding, and they've had enough. The state-owned energy utility, ESCOM, has to schedule blackouts of up to 12 hours a day in order to prevent the total collapse of the power grid. We must, without delay, deal with the electricity crisis that faces the nation. That is a primary objective and a primary task. And while President Cyril Ramaphosa acknowledges that South Africa's national power grid is falling apart, the ruling African National Congress party has done very little to prevent its imminent collapse. The cumulative impact of historical underinvestment in maintenance and assets is now resulting in a series of breakdowns. But now the government has no choice but to act and the president is considering declaring a national state of disaster which would open the way to fast-track spending. We are now in the 16th year of load shedding in this country with no reprieve in sight. 
independent energy expert Lungi Lemashele says this is a man-made crisis. You've got a political crisis which started in 1997 where the then CEO of ESCOM alerted government and told them that if we do not get additional capacity in, we're going to start low shedding from 2007, which is exactly what happened. However, she maintains that ESCOM can still turn the corner with political will, of course. So you get the adequate skills in, you get procurement in, you get the funding in, consulting engineers, lawyers, and you hold contractors accountable for what has to happen. Most importantly, corruption, which the government admits has contributed significantly to the crisis at ESCOM, has to be addressed. But the ruling ANC doesn't have time on its side. South Africans will be heading to the polls in national elections next year, and the energy crisis may influence the outcome. For NPR News, I am Mpo Lagage, Soweto, South Africa. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinhoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, today marks a year since a debacle at the Beijing Winter Olympics. Russia won the team figure skating competition, but then was at the center of a doping scandal. We look at where officials are with awarding medals. It's 819. I'm Yasmin Ammer in for Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston. Are you lonely? It turns out a lot of people are. And the pandemic has made it worse. A task force has taken on how to reduce loneliness in Massachusetts in small but impactful ways. What that work looks like and why it matters beyond just good company. That's Radio Boston this morning at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Increasing clouds today with a high near 34. Tonight, cloudy with a low of 30. Overnight, a good chance of rain, sleet, freezing rain, and then snow. Not much accumulation expected. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 47. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 820. I'm WBUR weekend host Sharon Brody. Let's talk about connections and how great they are. Connections like the love you share with your best friend, your grandparents, your grown-up kid, the person your grown-up kid marries, who reminds your grown-up kid to maybe respond to mama's texts. I mean, just to take it for instance. And alongside maintaining connections, another great life activity is subverting the dominant paradigm. So here's an idea. Maybe try a less conventional approach to which people you celebrate this Valentine's Day. You could surprise a loved one with some unexpected recognition. These are the people who make your heart sing. You can send them Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll help us tell stories that keep us all connected. It's really easy to do. Just go to WBUR.org. And thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, exploring how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive. Learn more about Dana-Farber's Momentum of Discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, 
for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K-12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Good morning. It's a not-so-happy Olympic anniversary today. A year ago, Russia won the team figure skating event at the Beijing Winter Games, powered by teenage phenom Kamila Valieva. But her subsequent positive drug test marred the games and left the team results in limbo. Valieva's case remains unresolved, and the Olympic athletes, including second-place finishers from the U.S. team, still don't have their medals. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. On the first day of the Olympic team event last February, Zach Donahue and his U.S. ice dance partner Madison Hubble did their part. Their personal best score helped stake the U.S. to an early lead, but on the final day of competition a year ago today, 15-year-old Kamila Valieva made history with two quadruple jumps and led the Russians to victory just ahead of the U.S. Donahue remembers the next day team members were getting ready to head to the ceremony to claim their silver medals. We were dressed in our ceremony gear in a room waiting to take a bus to the venue, and we're told... Um, so this is canceled. And we're all like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. Funny joke. It's cool. Let's go. A team official told them, no joke. There's a doping issue. We can't say more. So for all of us, the first step was kind of incredulous wonderment. More emotion followed, like frustration and disappointment as information emerged. Valieva tested positive for a banned drug from a sample taken more than a month before the Beijing Games. Her case should have been resolved, but wasn't by the time the Olympics started. And then, Donahue says, as the months rolled by, still without resolution? Outrage and just disbelief that this is still the situation. Donahue says the delay goes beyond the still unclaimed medals and their potential to provide the athletes with bonuses and sponsorship opportunities. This decision being postponed for so long really detracts from the integrity of the Olympic image and the Olympic values. And I think it takes a lot away from the integrity that the majority of athletes choose. Here we now are throwing salt on those wounds. The salt in the wounds, says U.S. Anti-Doping Agency CEO Travis Tigert, was last month's decision by the Russian Anti-Doping Agency to clear Valieva of wrongdoing. Tigert says the decision lacked transparency and independence and was done by an organization declared in 2015 non-compliant. For their involvement as an instrument of the state running an intentional state-sponsored doping program where they knowingly gave and assisted athletes from Russia to use drugs and then knowingly sent them to international competition. The World Anti-Doping Agency says it's likely to appeal last month's Valieva decision. WADA, as it's known, is not beyond blame in this case, nor is figure skating's international governing body. Both, Tigert says, could have taken the case out of Russian hands and pushed to get it resolved months ago. Instead, anti-doping efforts in Olympic sport have taken another credibility hit, and athletes from the U.S., third place Japan, and yes, Russia, wait and wonder about their medals. Although not always, says Zach Donahue. Along with teammates, he's received several email updates on the case. I have to be honest, there were multiple times that I would look at that email and go, oh my God, I forgot that I'm waiting on a medal. It's been so long that it's not even relevant. 
Donahue says it will be once Valieva's guilt or innocence finally is decided and when all the athletes gather to accept whatever medals resolution brings. Donahue says he's heard a lot of the waiting athletes want their stolen Olympic moment truly Olympic this time, meaning a possible award ceremony at next year's Summer Games in Paris, assuming the case is closed by then. Tom Goldman, NPR News. The earthquake that struck Turkey this week did not surprise many seismologists who study the region and its fault lines. So why was the region not better prepared? NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. To understand what just happened, here's the big picture. The Arabian Peninsula is making its way north into the Eurasian Plate, and the entire nation of Turkey is getting squeezed aside. Michael Steckler is at the Levant Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. Arabia is slowly moving north and has been colliding with Turkey, and Turkey is moving out of the way to the west. This earthquake occurred at the junction of several faults involved with that tectonic push. It's a pretty busy and complicated area. But Turkish seismologists had suspected that at some point there was going to be a big quake in this region. This is not surprise for us. Fatih Balut is a seismologist at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul. Balut says stress has been building up in this part of Turkey for hundreds of years. His team and others have been predicting an earthquake about this size, though they couldn't say exactly when it would happen. The quake was a kind that occurs when two parts of the earth slide past each other. As a result, the damage is spread along the fault line. It is quite large, like 10 cities are affected structurally affected in Turkey. Turkey and Syria have been at the epicenter of earthquakes for millennia, including a quake that flattened the Syrian city of Aleppo in 1138. Turkey now has seismic codes to try and keep buildings standing. But Balut says because this area hadn't been hit hard for centuries, it's quite possible that some of the buildings predate the codes. Sometimes there are very old things built before the rules exist. Steckler adds that he believes some construction in Turkey circumvents the rules. I know certainly in, in Istanbul, there's a lot of illegal construction that goes on and people not following the building codes. Strong aftershocks are continuing to rock the region. Steckler says he expects they may go on for a while. That whole area, all the pieces of the earth will slowly adjust and break and rupture and come to a new equilibrium. While the people above struggle to come to grips with the devastating aftermath of this powerful quake. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, authorities in Ohio have conducted a controlled release of chemicals to avert a catastrophe after a train derailment. It's 829. President Joe Biden gives the annual State of the Union address tonight. This time he'll do it before a deeply divided Congress. Listen live on the radio tonight at 9. WBUR will have the speech in Spanish and English.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Efforts are continuing in southeastern Turkey and northern Syria to locate additional survivors of yesterday's powerful earthquake. More than 5,000 people are known dead amid the rubble of collapsed buildings. The U.S. is sending help, as are Israel and the Palestinian Authority, as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. The Palestinians are usually recipients of international aid because of conflict with Israel and Israel's occupation of the West Bank. But the Palestinian Authority has its own rescue and trauma team of 64 doctors and specialists who respond to international disasters. They were recently in Pakistan helping flood victims. Now they say they're headed to Syria and Turkey in the coming days. The U.S. economy and the nation's debt ceiling are expected to be among the issues highlighted by President Biden in tonight's State of the Union address. NPR's Tamara Keith says despite strong job growth and low unemployment, the president has a lot of doubters. A recent ABC News Washington Post poll found 40 percent of Americans say that they are worse off now than they were when President Biden took office. Inflation is no doubt a big driver of that feeling, and it's been falling recently, but it's still uncomfortably high. So Biden has to show Americans that he feels their pain while also talking about what he feels are very real accomplishments. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A memorial will be held in Chestnut Hill today to mark three years since the death of Justin Root. The 41-year-old was shot and killed by police in an encounter that began in Boston. His sister is Jennifer Root Bannon. She says Justin was experiencing a mental health crisis and police mishandled the situation. Root Bannon has become an advocate for police reform. I'm just hoping that Justin's case can just be an opportunity for us to move forward. He's dead. He's gone. This is about moving forward. I don't want more people to die. Root Bannon is appealing a judge's ruling that officers' use of force was justified because Root was holding a paintball gun. Boston officials say they can't comment on ongoing litigation. The highest court in Massachusetts is considering whether to allow a ballot question that would limit campaign contributions. Alden Bourne reports the court heard arguments yesterday. A proposed ballot question submitted in 2022 would have limited contributions to super PACs to $5,000 per year. The state attorney general's office refused to certify it, saying the contribution limits violated the U.S. Constitution because of previously decided cases, including Citizens United. The attorney for supporters of the ballot question told the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court those cases aren't relevant. But Assistant Attorney General Ann Sturman argued otherwise. I think to the extent there are any differences, he has not explained, I don't think, why the reasoning that those cases employed would not be equally applicable to the law that's proposed here. The case is expected to be decided within five months or so. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Slavery took place in more areas of Boston than historians previously thought. A new report shows nearly 60 black and indigenous people were enslaved by white people from a church in Roxbury in the 16 and 1700s. Researchers tell the Boston Globe the new information gives Boston a better idea of its past. They also say the report shows evidence of what could be the first interracial marriage in Massachusetts. Newton is getting closer to finding a new school superintendent. The district will interview its three finalists next week. That's when the three will also visit schools in the city. All of the candidates are superintendents in other Massachusetts school districts. Newton officials say they hope to pick someone by the end of the month.
It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Celtics beat the Pistons 111-99 last night in Detroit. The Seas will host the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. In the men's college hockey beanpot semifinals last night, Northeastern beat BU 3-1. Harvard advances by beating BC 4-3 in overtime. The final is next week. The women's beanpot begins tonight at Boston College. A high in the mid-30s today with more clouds crowding the skies as the day goes on. Tonight we only fall a bit to the low 30s, but overnight we may get a messy mix of rain, sleet, and freezing rain capped off by snow. On Wednesday, temperatures rise back to the mid to upper 40s and it'll be sunny. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Not far from the border between Ohio and Pennsylvania, a freight train went off the tracks. The crash led to fire, and authorities said they drained hazardous chemicals to avoid an explosion. Thousands of people were evacuated from their homes and schools and businesses shut down in East Palestine. Residents are still being told to stay away until the fire dies down. Julie Grant is covering this for the Allegheny Front. Good morning. Good morning. What's the trouble here? Well, there's a mess of smoldering train tanker cars crashed around the tracks. There's 50 cars in all. The focus was on five of them, those filled with chemical vinyl chloride. Mm. In at least one car, temperatures were rising, and officials from Norfolk Southern were concerned that it would blow up. They conducted what they called a controlled release on Monday. They cut a small hole in the cars so the chemicals could slowly leak into a trench that was filled with flares, Mm. kind of like a controlled burn. Gotcha. And there was an explosion. Scott Deutsch of Norfolk Southern said that was the safest way to proceed. So this was for us to control the reaction that was taking place and not the cars doing it on their own. That's very important. That makes it safe. So the plan was about controlling the explosion when it occurred, where train parts landed and limiting fumes in the air. And the company says it was a success. You know, Julie, when I look uh, at the pictures of this, it's not even like the train cars are still close to the tracks. They're just scrambled in all directions. It's really stunning. You get a sense of the incredible momentum of these many tons heavy cars being thrown around. What could have caused that? Yeah, it's a real scene there. The National Transportation Safety Board was on site over the weekend. The agency's Michael Graham said videos of the scene indicate mechanical issues with one of the rail car axles. That's only preliminary. They used drones to map the derailment and they were able to secure video and audio recordings. And Graham says they'll create a timeline. The data will then be sent to the NTSB's vehicle data recorder lab in Washington, D.C. for a complete evaluation and analysis. 
So it'll take four to six weeks to produce a preliminary report and up to two years for a final report. You know, I just looked up at a television just now and there was video of a fire there being seen within sight of homes. Granting that people have been evacuated, is there still concern about health effects here? Well, the immediate health effects of breathing in these chemicals can be extreme from skin burns, lung damage, and even death. And this is why Governor DeWine of Ohio was so adamant that people evacuate the area. Authorities say they didn't see any harmful air quality measurements yesterday. The Ohio EPA is monitoring air quality. And officials say that now cleanup and remediation at the site can continue safely. How widespread is the evacuation for how long? Well, the order from Governor DeWine and from Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro meant about 5,000 people had to evacuate their homes. Those were people who live within a one to two mile area around the derailment site, straddling either side of the state line. I spoke with a number of residents over the weekend. They were at a community center looking for help and for information. Some of them were scared and confused, and many are anxious to return home, but that might not happen for a while. Schools are closed for at least a week. Julie, thanks for the update. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Julie Grant is a reporter with the Allegheny Front who covers environmental issues. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine joins us next. Governor, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Can you help us understand the timeline here? This train derailed on Friday, but it seems to have taken a couple of days of burning for it to develop into an emergency that required an evacuation. Well, this thing started going south uh, Sunday night. I was on a conference call with, with our team, which I'd been doing, and you know, they talked about uh, the measurement that the railroad was doing with one particular car uh, where the temperature was going up. They described uh, chemicals in there as unstable. Uh, and the concern was a what they described as a catastrophic blow-up. Uh, and so, you know, I went, went there uh, to Columbiana County and uh, was, was on the phone yesterday, probably for two to three hours with Governor Shapiro as we talked to this, this whole situation and got the best advice we could. We had the Defense Department involved. Uh, our Ohio National Guard did the modeling, uh, and that was the real the real question. Uh, you know, what is the damage if you do nothing and it ends up uh, blowing up versus uh, going in, as, as uh, your reporters already described, uh, you know, a controlled release? Yeah. And both of them, frankly, neither one was a particularly uh, – you know, a, a option that we liked. <laughs> and so it was, a, it was really a balancing, trying to balance those out. And the final decision was, uh, you know, to, to evacuate people uh, in the area. We had to make sure we had, we had the right modeling down, and we think we did. Uh, and, you know, that, that took place. We went back. When this started, we had evacuated people from, yeah. from that, pretty much that whole area. We had to go back now for the third time, uh, yesterday and make sure that, that people, you know, people were out and um, and we, we move forward. You you mentioned modeling, of course. You're talking about trying to calculate where the chemicals would go, what areas would be hazardous for people to be in. Do you feel the evacuation went well? Well, look, I think it, I think it went well. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you always have to be concerned when you go in. People do not want to leave. Uh, and when we went in the second and third time, uh, you know, we have no way of knowing if people are actually in the house. They just are not responding. Now, our uh, 
the local sheriff, uh, other law enforcement, Ohio State Highway Patrol, really you know, made a lot of noise, banged on the doors, and, you know, we were able to get several other people out. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's some people who were still, uh, you know, reluctant uh, to, to, to get out. The modeling, uh, you know, so far has turned out to be uh, good. We are monitoring the Ohio EPA, U.S. EPA is monitoring the air outside uh, the area where we told everybody to, you know, that was inside that area to leave. But mm-hmm. so far, uh, the air quality has been good. What questions do you have now, Governor, about the safety of the railroads that run through your state? Oh, it brings up, uh, you know, many, many questions. Uh, and I think after you see a catastrophic, uh, you know, wreck like that with all the uh, ramifications and, of course, knowing you know, what they were carrying, I think you have to, you know, we have to go back and, uh, and kind of reexamine the whole situation. I mean, the federal government, of course, is doing the investigation. They'll let us know what, why that actually happened. But, uh, yes, it, it certainly is, is a wake-up call, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to take a hard look at uh, all, all, the, all the railroads. Mike DeWine is the Republican governor of Ohio. Governor, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, are you among the many, many, many people hoping to hear this live? That's Beyonce. And if you haven't heard her already, she's going on tour this summer. But after the Taylor Swift debacle, is Ticketmaster ready to sell Beyonce tickets? A closer look coming up. Mid-30s today, it'll grow increasingly overcast throughout the day. Tonight, low 30s, and overnight we may see rain, sleet, freezing rain, and snow. No accumulation expected. Upper 40s tomorrow and sunny. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, a member of the Sustainable Furnishings Council, with local and sustainably sourced furniture crafted to last a lifetime. CircleFurniture.com. Now in business news, researchers and lecturers at Harvard are attempting to form a union. The group behind the effort represents the university's non-tenure-track staff. It began collecting authorization cards yesterday. Organizers say they hope unionization will help improve job insecurity, lead to higher pay, and improve working conditions and benefits. A pet store with 18 locations throughout Massachusetts is going out of business. Loyal Companion says its parent company filed for bankruptcy and all stores will close by the end of the month. Its Massachusetts locations include storefronts in Boston, Cambridge, Newton, and Stoneham. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. And CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBTeam.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Faldin. The wait is over. Beyonce, or as some folks call her Queen Bee, is back. And tickets for her first solo tour in five years are finally on sale this week. Hola, oh baby, baby, you won't break my soul. You won't break my soul. 
So how's it going for Ticketmaster this time around? Here to answer that question is NPR's Jonathan Franklin. Good morning. Good morning, Layla. Thanks for having me. So, Jonathan, has anything changed with Ticketmaster since what we saw happen back in November? Well, you know, Layla, that's a very good question. Uh, When Taylor Swift tickets went on sale, so many people tried to buy them at the same time that Ticketmaster's website just flat out crashed. But this time around, Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation, say they're going to be making some changes. The companies say they're going to stagger their ticket sales. So you'll be able to buy tickets for certain cities before others go on sale. And that way, all of her fans in Toronto, for example, won't flood the website at the same time as her fans in Miami. And since Beyonce just became the most awarded artist in Grammy's history, people are definitely wanting to go to see Queen Bee. Yeah. So if I'm a Beyonce fan, what is the process of getting a ticket? Well, luckily, Ticketmaster is using a system that they've had for a while called Verified Fan, and they're asking for fans to register in advance for their preferred shows. They say that fans will be vetted individually, so the company is really hoping that people are buying tickets for themselves and not for reselling. And they're making the tickets non-transferable up to a certain point. So if you do wind up with a ticket, you better hope you can really make it to her show. That's a process. How's it going so far, and what happens if the site melts down again? Well, thankfully, Layla, the pre-sale started yesterday, and it seems to be going pretty smoothly, fingers crossed. And there's no reports of any major website crashes. Uh, Once the demand exceeds the supply, Ticketmaster will resort to more of a lottery-style selection process that will put random verified fans on the wait list. But, Layla, that wait list doesn't mean necessarily you'll get a ticket. And the pressure is definitely intense, as both fans and Congress are watching the situation to see how the pre-sale goes and if there are any, you know, glitches or hiccups. And the website failures are not the only thing that they're watching. It's gotten so bad to the point where President Biden called for Ticketmaster and other companies to lower the service fees that are oftentimes slapped onto tickets for concerts or sporting events. And even Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota has called Live Nation a, quote, monopoly. And then she suggested that using an antitrust law to break things up. And the day after Beyonce announced her tour, the Senate Judiciary Committee issued a not so subtle warning to the company, saying in a tweet, quote, we're watching. So they'll have Congress to deal with and the beehive. So we'll see what happens. That's NPR's Jonathan Franklin. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you for having me. Morning edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. You said if I'm a Beyonce fan. I mean, <laughs> I can't come on, say come I on. am or I am not. I have no opinion. Oh, that's true. You're a journalist. You're a journalist. <laughs> Objective on the music. I mean, well, she's pretty good. Let's let it play. I'm Stephen. This is 90.9 WBUR, where we are all Beyonce fans. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what President Biden might say about the economy tonight in the State of the Union and how that may be received. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now. Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Deepa. And how can you not be a Beyonce I know, fan? Right? We at Here and Now are all Beyonce fans too. And you heard it here first, Rupert. There may be a certain host singing some Beyonce on today's show. Ooh, but I'll you? just leave that. 
I'll just leave that one alone. All right. And all right. you all can tune in. We have a lot on today's show. Um, and actually, we're going to be talking to the president of the American Psychological Association. She has a history of fleeing the Liberian Civil War, and she wants to bring psychology to the people. Super fascinating. Tune in for that one. Also, David Remnick on Salman Rushdie. David Remnick is the only journalist from The New Yorker, who Salman Rushdie has talked to. So that will be a fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. And we talked to an 18-year-old high school student who is speaking out about Utah's ban on transgender care for Mm -hmm. minors. So much coming up on today's show. I hope everybody will tune in. I'd say. Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR. And this is my daughter, Gabriela. On New Year's Eve, Gabby showed up unexpectedly to my performance in Boston's South End. I'm also a musician, and it was one of my proudest moments as a dad to play music with my daughter. Gabby agreed to get up on stage with me and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share my story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose to send flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org. At the moment, it is good to be an oil company. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. I'm David Brancaccio. Shares in the oil company BP are jumping this morning, up almost 6% in London. The company said it made almost $28 billion in profit last year. Now That's a record for BP, but it is not the biggest oil and gas profit we have seen recently, with quarterly results still coming in. Marketplace's Nova Safo has been adding up the numbers. Yeah, and in fact, not the biggest at all. That honor goes to ExxonMobil. It made nearly $56 billion in profit in 2022. That's more than twice what it made the year earlier. BP's profits last year nearly quadrupled compared to 2021. And adding up reported profits, David, of the six biggest Western oil companies which have reported so far, the total comes to about $185 billion. This is close to what analysts were expecting, actually, because oil prices spiked so high last year thanks to Russia's war in Ukraine and the resulting energy crisis. We will hear from the French company Total Energies tomorrow, and that should round out the picture of how much oil companies made in profits as a lot of people were in sticker shock over high energy prices. Now, investors were happy, but this can put pressure on politicians dealing with voters who paid the money that produced these profits. Indeed. And we'll have to see if President Biden mentions oil profits in his State of the Union address tonight. In the past, the president has accused oil giants of war profiteering, and he's called for a windfall profits tax. The European Union already has one. Britain has one, too. But critics say it has loopholes. And after 
BPA reported its results. There's calls to close that loophole. Nova, thank you. Crude oil is up 1.3% this morning to above $75 a barrel. It was $120 back in June. Checking the stock market, S&P futures are down two-tenths of a percent. Dow futures are down three-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are unchanged at the moment. Expect the economy to be a key pillar of President Biden's State of the Union speech. It's going to be a tough crowd in a sense, not just the GOP, but Americans in general are pessimistic about the economy despite extraordinarily low unemployment and inflation that is at least off of its peak. Marketplace's Kimberly Adams has more. The message tonight is likely to be some version of, yes, there's still work to do, but the economy is doing well. Really? The White House previewed some themes of the speech in Monday's press briefing. If you look at the progress that we have made with inflation coming down, gas prices coming down, real wages as a result going up. Brian Deese is director of the White House's National Economic Council. And the labor market opportunities that come from a strong, historically strong job market, those are all reasons why we should continue down the path of the progress that we have made. But the White House has been struggling to get that message across. Yeah, it's hard to convince people when they don't believe that. Neil Bradley is with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. If you look at the surveys, whether you're talking about consumers, small businesses, mid-sized businesses, even large businesses, you do have this moment where people's perception of the overall economy is quite negative. Yet uh, their view of their own business operations or their personal finances tend to be much stronger. He calls it secondhand pessimism, and it's pretty pervasive. Some of it has to do with partisanship. The opposing party is usually more down on the broader economy when someone they don't like is in the White House. But people are feeling some real economic challenges. Megan Brennan is a senior editor at Gallup, whose polling found Americans are feeling pretty negative about the next six months on inflation, unemployment, interest rates, economic growth, and stock market values. And, of course, the gridlock in Washington. We had one in five Americans saying that the government is the most important problem facing this country. The next measure was inflation. So I think those two points, you know, the economy and where we're at and where we're headed is clearly a big concern to Americans. Inflation is real after all, and so is people's worry or fear about the future. And that fear is what Biden really has to address in the State of the Union. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where research on how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive is leading to new therapies for some blood cancers. Learn more about this momentum at DanaFarber.org slash stories. And by the Slowdown Podcast. Join award-winning poet Major Jackson, the newest host of the Slowdown, for a hand-picked poem and a moment of reflection every weekday. The second in command at the Federal Reserve, Lael Brainerd, had said the U.S. needs to get going to develop a digital currency or the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency could suffer. She did say this before several big cryptocurrency exchanges went bust, but pushes in this direction are still happening around the world. The British Treasury and the Bank of England are now talking about a digital pound, maybe later this decade. The BBC's Shiona McCallum reports. 
Both institutions say they want to ensure the public have access to safe money that is easy to use in the digital age and that the digital pound might be the answer as we move away from cash. It will be a central bank digital currency and while it might use similar technology to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, it will keep its value pegged to the pound in your purse. So 10 digital pounds will be worth the same as a £10 note. Despite a consultation by the Treasury and the Bank of England starting, it doesn't mean that the digital currency will definitely be issued. A decision on whether to do so will take into account the payments landscape, trends in cash use and international developments. Other countries around the world are also considering similar proposals, including the US, China and the Eurozone. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is up 39% this year and up 6 tenths percent this morning. And before we go, AMC movie theaters are trying to get more Broadway style with their ticketing arrangements. It's going to roll out a system where the better seats cost more compared to seats where the sightlines aren't as good. But unlike Broadway, the seats at the very front of the movie theater will be the cheapos because, well, you've been to a movie theater. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Join us tonight for live coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address. It'll be his first address before a divided Congress. We'll have it here on 90.9 WBUR or listen at WBUR.org for NPR coverage in both English and Spanish. And your forecast skies will grow increasingly overcast today while temperatures rise to the mid-30s. Tonight, low 30s and cloudy. Then overnight, a chance of rain, sleet, freezing rain or snow. No accumulation is expected and we warm up tomorrow to the upper 40s under sunny skies. It's 27 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. Tonight we meet as Democrats, Republicans, Independents, but most importantly, as Americans. When President Joe Biden addressed the nation last year in his State of the Union speech, Democrats controlled both the House and Senate. This year, he addresses America in the face of a newly divided Congress and a potential re-election campaign. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.